You know, we live in a church culture that is deeply concerned with being practical, don't we? We live in a very pragmatic culture that is very interested in hands-on, down-to-earth, user-friendly, real-world application to the trenches of life, aren't we? And I'm not knocking that. That's, that's good, and that's right, and that's appropriate. We, we, we should care about authentic life change and transformation. We should care about being practical. In fact, no one should care more about being practical than people who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We care about that. No one disputes that. What is disputed, however, is what counts as being practical. See, I'm concerned about a rumor that circulates and has circulated in the church for years, decades, namely that doctrine and theology, especially the doctrine of eschatology, the doctrine of the end times, although it is helpful at some sort of theoretical level, it doesn't actually have the power to change and transform our lives. We just assume that there are some doctrines in the Bible that, that aren't actually practical or useful for everyday life, and so therefore to the great impoverishment of our souls, we minimize them, we, we ignore them, and there is probably no doctrine more minimized or ridiculed or, or ignored than the doctrine of eschatology, the doctrine of the end times, and yet I remain convinced that it is the essence of practical. I'm absolutely persuaded that the more we know and love eschatology and what it is that God has planned for the end of the world, that the more wise and holy and passionate and loving and courageous we will be with the gospel. I'm totally persuaded of that. And the reason why I am persuaded of the practical value and nature of eschatology is because that's exactly the point that John makes in our text this morning that part of a well-balanced theological breakfast is a sizable portion of eschatology. That we got to know at some level of specificity what it is that God has planned for the future. And the reason why you do is because if you actually believe this stuff, it actually has the power to alter and change your life. And by now, you well know John's burden in this letter. You know that there were some clever con men who crept into this church. And they caused real confusion about the doctrine of salvation. And one of the things they claimed, believe it or not, was that holiness and obedience were essentially optional. That you, one could claim all the saving benefits of Jesus Christ and yet live their lives in total disregard of the word of Christ. That they could live in the darkness and claim to be in the light. The problem with that, John says, is that that's not at all how children of God, born again, actually live their lives. In fact, that sounds, to be totally honest, more like children of the devil. That's what John says. That's what he says. And you see, that's the thing about 1 John chapter 3. Get this, this entire chapter, chapter 3 of 1 John, the entire chapter exists to reveal that there are two and only two kinds of people living in the world. Just two. There are children of God born again, and there are children of the devil 
dead in sin. Those are the only two kind of people living in the world, and every single person in this room belongs in one of those two groups. Not both, not, not one at the same time, not neither, just one. And you see, these false teachers who had crept into the church and their little fanboys who followed them around and followed their doctrines, these people, despite their credible-sounding claims, they were nothing more than sons and daughters of the devil himself. In fact, John goes on to say that anyone whose lives are filled and dominated by sin, that despite what they claim, they are, in fact, offspring of the evil. When he calls them children of the devil, which sounds harsh and over the top, I admit, I admit. And yet, the reality is, John says that born again, children of God actually pursue holiness. I mean, they're far from perfect. And they've got their struggles to be sure. But nevertheless, sons and daughters of God prove the reality of their salvation through profound displays of purity in their lives. And believe it or not, that brings us right back to the issue of eschatology. Because one of the things that John says produces profound holiness and purity in our lives is, get this, is the conviction of what it is that God has planned for the future. Because you understand, children of God, we do not only live in light of what God has done in the past, but also in light of what God will do in the future. That's why eschatology is practical. So let's see it from the text. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text three realities. Let's call them inescapable realities. Three inescapable realities that you do and will experience if you are children of God born again. Three uh, inescapable realities that you do and will experience if you are children of God born again. Number one. Number one, the reality of the past. The reality of the past, which is the Father has given unspeakable affection. The Father has given unspeakable affection. Because here's what's really interesting about 1 John chapter 3. This entire chapter was triggered into existence by one phrase at the end of chapter 2. And it is the phrase, born from God. That, that we, we have to understand that, but if or we will miss the point of the entire chapter. And so look at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 29. Notice what John says. He says, if you know that he is righteous, that is Christ, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born from him. And there it is. That phrase, born from him, that is the operative phrase that brought the entirety of chapter 3 into existence. Now John's job is to unfold the implications of what it means to be born from God. Because you remember, you remember, to be born from God, that's the exact same thing that Christ told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when he told him that he needed to be born again. Remember that? This is the exact same thing Paul was talking about in Titus 3.5. When he talked about regeneration, the doctrine of regeneration, polygenesia in the Greek, which literally means born again. 
This is the same thing Paul talked about in Ephesians 2.5 when he said that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Same thing. This is the same thing Ezekiel talked about in chapter 36 when he said that one day God would remove the heart of stone from his people and give them a heart of flesh. He would put his very spirit within them which means he would make them alive from the inside out. Same exact thing. It's the exact moment John describes when he says, you have been born from God, not reincarnation, but regeneration. And when you connect the dots, you find out exactly what being born again means. You know what it is? Do you know what the doctrine of regeneration means, what it's referring to? You see, what it is is a miracle. A life-giving, soul-awakening miracle that God had to perform for you to believe and be saved. I mean, you were never going to do that on your own. Never. Ever. All people are born blind and dead and damned and helpless, which requires that something supernatural take place in order for you to believe and be saved. That's exactly what John is referring to. Put it this way, if you are saved here this morning, and I hope you all are, it is because God saved you through the sovereign awakening of the Spirit through the gospel, which enabled you to see the beauty of Christ and awaken in you the very repentance and faith by which you are saved. I will have no competition here. Who, who is the preacher back there? Uh, there's only one sermon going on here. No, there's a few didn't get all that. All that means is that even when you were dead, God walked up to the tomb of your dead soul and he said, live. And you became alive. And in that moment, your eyes were awakened to the beauty of Christ and you got saved. You understand, regeneration is not a makeover. It is a divine takeover of your soul. So you can see why regeneration is such a big deal, can't you? You can see why John would take an entire chapter to unfold the implications of what it means to be born again. And I want you to notice the first implication that he draws out in chapter 3, verse 1. Look at the text. Look what he says. He says, Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us, so that we would be called children of God. And that is exactly what we are. And do you notice the connection between this verse and the last verse of chapter 2? When he talks about the Father's love, he means not the Father's love displayed in general, but the Father's love displayed in particular in the miracle of being born again. And when he talks about being children of God, he means that being born from God is precisely the thing that made us his children. And even though we can't hear John's voice, we can see John's voice in the words that he uses because he is gripped with emotion, isn't he? Look at the text. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us. Behold, he says. Which kind of sounds like Shakespeare. But really what it is is an expression of amazement or joy, or, or wonder, or shock, or surprise, and maybe all of the above. And yet, what is it that has John so utterly gripped by emotion? What is it? 
What it is, is the wonders of the Father's love. And particularly the Father's love displayed in the miracle of being born again. You understand the Father's love was revealed in our lives when he awakened us from the dead. When he opened our blinded eyes. When he took out of us the heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. When he put his very spirit within us. You understand that was love. Sovereign awakening love. Because you understand had the father not done that we would have never believed and been saved. And as John is writing the words born of God, he, he can't help but stop. He gets overwhelmed with emotion and he has to stop and he has to say something about the love that intervened and regenerated our souls. And all he can say is, what kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? And I know some versions say how great is the love, but, but literally it's what kind of love is this? What kind of love is this that harpoons through the human heart, hardened human heart, and creates life within us from the inside out? What kind of love does that? Because that love simply defies description, doesn't it? It, it must, because that word, what kind of, that's used only seven times in the New Testament. Only seven times, and every single time it does, it describes a heightened state of shock and emotion. What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea would obey him? Same word. You see, this is the word you use when all other words fail. When there's something so grand and glorious that it simply defies description because that is exactly what the love of God in our regeneration is. It is literally beyond description. And so the question for you to reflect on is, do you, has it dawned on you what God had to do to save you from eternal woe and despair? Has that, has that dawned on you? Do you marvel at the miracle of being born again by the living God? Do you pause and ponder the reality that had God not intervened and awakened you from your slumber of sin, that you were never going to believe and be saved? And maybe you're thinking, what do you what do you mean by that? What do you mean I was never going to believe? I repented. I believed. I, I did those things. And that's true. You did. Consciously. Willingly. Intentionally. Eagerly. But you only did them after God intervened and awakened you to do them. You understand our salvation is owing entirely to God's sovereign initiative and choice. And you see what that does is have some pretty remarkable effects on our lives, doesn't it? Or at least it should have remarkable effects on our lives. And yet that's the question. What, what should the soul awakening love of God actually produce in our lives in a practical way? Well, what should that produce? 
And I think it's totally obvious. The love of God that made us alive has five effects in our lives. And if you have notes, they are in your notes. The soul-awakening love of God that intervened in our lives affects our grumbling, our gloating, our gossip, our gratitude, and our gladness. Think about it. Think about it. The soul-awakening love of God affects our grumbling. See, we grumble and complain simply because we have the audacity to think that we deserve better than we're getting. And we don't. We totally don't. And regeneration reminds us that we have nothing to complain about because the only thing we actually deserve is the wrath and judgment of God forever that we are never going to experience if we're in Christ. Therefore, everything we get in Christ is nothing but grace. But second, being born again by the love of God affects our gloating, doesn't it? Our pride, our arrogance, our bragging, our, our, our boasting, our feelings of superiority over other people. We literally have nothing to be proud of, nothing to be proud of. We did nothing to get ourselves saved. In fact, the only contribution we had to our own salvation were the sins that needed to be forgiven. That's it. All we are is the object of sovereign love and mercy. But number three, soul-awakening love of God affects our gossip, doesn't it? See, we gossip and slander because there's a problem with our theology. And our problem with our theology is that we think we're better than other people. And yet regeneration levels the playing field, doesn't it? Regeneration reveals just how delusional that really is. I mean, pot calling a kettle black. Gossip and slander displays that we've lost our grip on reality. And what reality is, is that before the Father intervened with his love, all we were were zombies. Spiritual zombies. And how crazy is it that one former spiritual zombie would gossip and slander against another former spiritual zombie and not see how crazy that really is? Fourth, the new birth miracle makes us a grateful people, doesn't it? It makes us a grateful people. Because, because should we come to grips with how scary our situation really was before the Father intervened? That we were on the brink of destruction. That the smell of the furnace was already in our clothes. That we were never going to believe before the Father awakened our slumbering hearts then and only then when we come to grips with that will we then be a grateful people filled with joy. And speaking of joy, number five, the regenerating love of God that made us alive fills us with gladness, doesn't it? Fills us with gladness. It has to. It, it just has to. I mean, we can and should be the gladdest people in the world, shouldn't we? Why? Because, because it means that the most devastating dilemmas that were in your life have been completely overturned. Do you realize that? 
I know we all have problems, but the most devastating dilemmas in our life, if we belong to Christ, have been completely overturned. We're no longer slaves to sin. That's good news, isn't it? We're not going to hell. That's good news, isn't it? We're reconciled to the Father. That's good news, isn't it? Death is not the end. We're going to receive a kingdom one day. We will be resurrected at the end of the age. How could it possibly be that the Father would love us enough to make us his children? Which is exactly what John says in verse 1. Look what he says. Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us. Here's the result. Here it is. That we would be called children of God. Even years later, you can tell, can't you, as an old man, John is still shocked by the fact that he is a child of God, and he should be because that is a shocking thing. I mean, think about it. To, to be called a doctor or a hero or a president or, or a king simply cannot compare to being called children of the living God. What does that mean? What does that, what does that, what does that mean to be a child of the living God? What, what does that mean? Which is kind of like asking, how long does it take to travel from one end of the universe to the other? It's too big. It's too massive. We cannot wrap our minds around the cosmic love of God that awakened us from, from a slumbering sleep of spiritual death and, and adopted us by sovereign grace. The very least it means that we are heirs, you and I. We are heirs. We will inherit everything the Father predestined for us in His Son before time began. Are you a people loved by God this morning? More than you can possibly understand. More than we can possibly fathom. Don't you see, if you are in Christ, the kingdom is yours. Salvation is yours. God is yours. Christ is yours. Paradise is yours. Can you think of anything more advantageous than being sons or daughters of the living God? Can you think of anything? Don't even bother trying because there isn't one. And even just writing about it, John gets choked up. And notice, notice, John is very careful with his wording here, isn't he? He doesn't want anyone to think that being called children of God is merely an honorific title, but rather something profound and supernatural, because look at his wording in verse 1. He's very careful and precise. He says, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we would be called children of God. Notice, and that is exactly what we are. I mean, do, you, do you see his point? Well, what, what happened to us when the Father awakened us by sovereign love and we put our faith in his Son? What happened? What happened was we were then in that moment adopted by God. Did you know that? If you're in Christ, you're adopted. And yet, we're not just called 
the children of God. We, it's no mere change of title. This wasn't just a, a transaction on a piece of paper. No, we actually are the children of God, meaning that we are connected in Christ to the very life of God himself. We have his very spiritual DNA within our souls, or as 2 Peter 1.4 says, we are partakers of the divine nature. I mean, are you getting a sense why John makes such a big deal about being born again? To be born again by God is to be sovereignly awakened by the Father from spiritual death and adopted into his family, into his divine family. And the changes that the new birth produces in our lives are so utterly devastating that the world in which we live literally looks at us like we are from another planet. Because look what he says at the end of verse 1. Here's the result of being regenerated by the Father. He says, we are children of God. For this reason, he says, notice, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Do you, do you see the point he's making? The effects of regeneration in our lives are so utterly profound and devastating that we become unknown and unrecognizable to the world just as the creator himself is unknown and unrecognizable to the world. We so resemble him after we're born again. The world looks at us like we're from another planet. Put it this way, born again apples don't fall far from the very divine tree that made it. Therefore, the world hates the apples, us, because it hate the tree that made those apples, namely God. And I think what this does is raise an important question, don't you think? And the question is, does, does the world know you? Does the world know you? What I mean is the world slumbering in sin and, and dwelling in spiritual darkness, does the unsaved, non-Christian world recognize you as its own? Do you play for the same team as the world? Do you have the same values of the world? Do you love what the world loves? Do you hate what the world hates? Do you live as the world lives? Because you understand, 2 Corinthians 2.16, you know what it says about Christians? We smell like death. Christ says in John 15, 19, that if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 2 Timothy 3, says, 3, 12 says that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Woe to you, Christ says, when all men speak well of you. Because when all men speak well of you, it is either A, you are not born again and you live just like the world, or B, you are entirely way too silent about your faith. Either way, the question is, do you see any signs in your life that you are actually truly born again? That's the past. The Father has given us unspeakable affection, but let's not merely dwell on the past. Let's think about the future, shall we? Which brings us to the second inescapable reality that you do and will experience if you are children of God, born again. Here it is, number two, the reality of the future. 
the reality of the future, which is we will undergo unimaginable transformation. We will undergo unimaginable transformation. Because you know that one of the things that makes diet plans sell really well is not necessarily the commercial's facts about science and biology. That, that's not really what makes a, a, a diet plan sell really well. You know the science behind what makes a diet plan really sell? What makes it really a, a hot seller? Are the pictures, the testimonials, the, the before and after photographs. You, you see, we, we want a before and after, after photograph of the person who actually did the diet. We want results. We want proof that this thing is going to transform who we are now into the chiseled beefcake bronze god that we see on the advertisement, right? And you see, a before and after photograph is a little bit like what John does in verse 2. Look at the text. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. That's who we are now. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. Do you see it? The before and after photograph. Right now, today, we are the children of God. That's who we are right now. Born again by the sovereign love of the Father. That's the before photo. That's who we are now, and we love it. We love being sons and daughters of the living God, and we wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And yet, having said that, we still sin, don't we? We still struggle in our lives. We still lug around this fallen flesh. We have what Paul calls in Romans 7, this body of death. Although truly saved and really forgiven and we're no longer slaves of sin, there is still something deep within us that has not yet been redeemed. There's an inner corruption and power that wages war in our very souls and like poison contaminates everything we say and everything we do. Calvin put it like this. He says, physically, we are but dust and shadow. And death is always before our eyes. We are exposed to a thousand miseries and our souls to innumerable evils so that we always find a hell within us. Or as the old hymn put it, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Isn't that, isn't that your experience? But Calvin goes on, listen carefully. It is necessary, therefore, that our senses should be withdrawn from the view of the present things and that we should fix our gaze on that happiness which is as yet still hidden from our eyes. In other words, we are a wretched people and that makes us really sad. The things we do, the things we think, the things we say. I mean, is there no end to the cesspool of sin in our souls? Not in this life. 
Not in this life, there's not. And yet, be that as it may, be that as it may, we must not be discouraged. We can't despair. We can't let ourselves be discouraged as if who we are now is who we always will be. Rather, we must fix our gaze on that happiness which is as yet still hidden from our eyes, which is precisely what the apostle makes us do. Look at verse 2. Notice carefully his encouragement. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. Do you see? Who we are now is not who we will become. And who we will become, that has not yet been revealed. Meaning what? Well, what does John mean? He means the children of God are going to get an upgrade one day. I mean, he's being a little cryptic here, but he's clear enough, isn't he? There is coming in the future a complete transformation of who, of who we are of which the new birth was just the first installment regeneration was just the beginning of the full and final transformation that still awaits us in the future yet what that's going to be we don't exactly know because it has not yet been revealed all we know is something big is going to happen and the best is yet to come do you believe that and yet, having said that, we're not completely in the dark because John does leave us a few little tiny crumbs as to the metamorphosis about which he speaks. Look at the very next statement that he makes. Right now, we are children of God. It has not yet been made, it has not yet appeared what we will be. Here it is. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. There it is. Did you see it? Did you see that there in the text? We won't always remain in our fallen condition. We're going to be transformed one day into something we currently are not. And yet what that's going to be, we don't exactly know. We don't exactly know. All we know is, John says, that when Jesus Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. What on earth is he talking about? What is he describing here? Because whatever it is, it is eschatology. And John is going to use this in the very next verse as a basis for why we should pursue radical purity and holiness in our lives. So whatever John means here, we should get to the bottom of this. Because if you want radical holiness and purity in your lives, and you should want radical holiness and purity in your lives, we have got to figure out what John is talking about. So two questions. Two questions that we've got to get to the bottom of here. Number one, what is the appearance of Christ that John is talking about? What is this appearance of Christ? Number two, what is this alteration that we will experience as a result? Those are the questions. What is this appearance? What is the transformation? And they are connected together. So first, what is the appearance of Christ that, that John is talking about? Well, you notice, if you look carefully at the text, you notice that there is a sense of urgency about this. There's a sense of imminency about this 
There's this sense here that Christ could literally appear at any moment, and when he does, we will be supernaturally transformed. Do you see that? It's called the doctrine of imminency. Any moment, any second, Christ could appear. And you see, the reason why I draw your attention to that, why I belabor that, is because I simply think that this makes this different from the second coming. You see, I believe the New Testament describes two appearances of Christ. Two different appearances of Christ. There are two different events in which Christ returns, appears at different times in history with different details for radically different reasons. And one of which, one of which you know very well, and it is the second coming of Christ. When he returns after a seven-year tribulation and builds his kingdom and then is worshipped by the nations. The second coming, you understand, it is global. It is physical. He will come down to earth and his people will reign with him. And according to Revelation 20, we will reign with him for a thousand years in his kingdom. That's what the entire Old Testament is looking forward to. The global reign of the Messiah over the nations. This is not that. This is not that appearance. Because you see in the New Testament, which reserves the right, by the way, to tell us things that we didn't see in the old. They're called mysteries. The New Testament informs us, get this now, that there also will be an appearance of Christ. Before and separate from the second coming, the details of which are radically different. You see John 14, 1 through 3, Philippians 3, 20 through 21, 1 Thessalonians 4, 12 through 17 reveal that at any moment, literally, maybe even before I finish this very sentence, that Christ would suddenly appear as a thief in the night, and when he does, three things are going to happen. One, a resurrection. Two, a renovation, and three, a relocation. You knew they were going to rhyme, didn't you? <laughs> and be alliterated. You're welcome. Christ could appear at any moment, and when he does, three things are going to happen. One, a resurrection. Two, a renovation. Three, a relocation. In other words, number one, Christ could appear at any moment, and when he does, he will raise his people from the dead. Number two, Christ could appear at any moment. And when he does, he will renovate their lives and make them sinless and glorified. And number three, Christ could appear at any moment. And when he does, he will remove us off the planet and bring us back to heaven to be with him. He will literally relocate us from the earth into the heavenly realm. And that is not the second coming. That, that's different which occurs after a seven-year tribulation in which Christ returns to the earth and builds his global kingdom and is worshipped by the nations. This is not that. This is different than that. And maybe you're thinking, Jared, are you talking about the rapture? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And you don't have to call it that, but I hope you believe it. Maybe you're thinking, Jared, don't, don't you think that don't you, don't you think that sounds a little far-fetched and mythological? I'm really the, the rapture for reals? And come to think of it, you know what? It does sound a little crazy. 
It sounds about as crazy as God speaking the universe into existence. I mean, it sounds about as crazy as the parting of the Red Sea. It sounds about as crazy as a crucified Savior raising himself from the dead. It sounds about as nuts as God removing Enoch off the planet before he brought the flood. It sounds about as crazy as Elijah being taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. I suppose the rapture does sound a little outrageous. And yet I remain unmoved because I believe it is in the text and I believe it is the hope that the New Testament gives. Which brings us finally to question number two. What is the transformation, the alteration that John describes when Jesus Christ returns? Because he says, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him even as he is. Do you hear what he's describing? It is the instantaneous transformation of our bodies to resemble Christ when he appears. And get this, his glory, I guess, will be so unspeakable in its power that just looking upon him will bring about our own sinless glorification. Which is exactly what Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 15. If you've got your notes, it's in there. He says, this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. Behold, I say a mystery, which means something not revealed in the old. We will not all sleep, die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed, for it is necessary the corruptible to put on the incorruptible, and for the mortal to put on immortality. This is Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our lowly state into conformity to the body of his glory according to the power with which he used to bring all things in subjection to himself. That's exactly what John is describing, that moment right there. Don't you see, the, the rapture is not some magic carpet ride to avoid pain and persecution. Rather, what it is, it's about making a new humanity. Making a kingdom people. Ready to fill the earth and populate a kingdom just like we were created to at the beginning. The question is, is that what you're waiting for? Is that what you're waiting for? The, the any moment arrival of Christ to make you sinless and glorified and bring you back to heaven to be with him? Is that so shaping to your soul that it shapes who you are in the private, secret moments of your life? Sitting in traffic, walking the dog, standing in line, browsing the internet, Whatever it is, instead of where we are, instead of just staring, gawking at our phones the whole time, we need to leave them in our pocket and we need to discipline ourselves to remember, I am right now waiting for the any moment arrival of Jesus Christ who will transform the body of my lowly state into conformity to the body of his glory. You see, what this is is theological time travel that the future alters the present. The question becomes, how exactly, 
How exactly, exactly does the rapture produce authentic life change and transformation? That's the question. Which brings us to number three. Number three, the reality of the present. The reality of the present, which is number three, we do experience unstoppable purification. We do experience unstoppable purification. Now, now we get to test our hypothesis whether or not eschatology is actually practical for our lives. If this really does have value for the trenches of life. Think of it this way. The most private, secret moments of who you are when no one can see you except God. How does the rapture actually have power to change us and who we are even in those moments? Well, John certainly seems to think that it is applicable, that it does have power, because look at his final point in verse 3. Starting in verse 2, he says, We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we'll see him even as he is. The one who has this hope, therefore, on him purifies himself even as he is and you see this verse right here, this was John's agenda the whole time. He was, this was his target the whole time. His entire agenda was to get here, right here, that one of the clearest manifestations of children of God born again was a profound holiness and purity in light of Christ's return. That the future does have practical life-changing power. That's what he wanted to show us. And notice, notice in verse 3, his synonym for the rapture. What does he call it? What does he call the sovereign intervention of our lives when Christ returns, when he transforms us? What does he call it? What's the word he uses? He calls it hope. This, this is hope, he says. You understand, biblical hope is not merely that things will somehow get better than they are. Biblical hope is not merely that Christ will somehow intervene and turn things for good. No, biblical hope is sitting on the edge of our seats, as it were, waiting for the king to come in unspeakable radiance. It is listening for the trumpet. Longing for the upgrade to a glorified body, never to die, never to sin again. That is biblical hope. The question is, is that your hope? Is that your hope? Because you understand waiting for this any second surprise appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ is a little bit, not exactly, but is a little bit like your last day at work just before you go on vacation. Not a perfect analogy. Every analogy breaks down. But you remember what that's like, right? You have the ultimate getaway destination planned. You just can't wait to be there. You just can't wait to get to the beaches of Florida. Florida's an awesome place. I did not know about Florida being from Washington. We only have cold beaches. There are warm beaches. This is incredible. And all day long, all day long, the mundane of your day is interrupted by these exciting reminders of your vacation. You, you spend your last day before you punch out, as it were, in excited anticipation of what it is that you are about to experience. This is better than that. It is better than that. Because sometimes before our vacations, we get lazy, don't we? We go into our vacation mode before we actually go on our vacation. 
We're so excited we can't focus on our work. We cut corners. We get super distracted. We lose interest in what it is that we're supposed to do. Priorities begin to slip. This is not that. This is not that. You see, listening for the trumpet doesn't make us lazy. As we wait for the king and the golden shores of eternity, we don't lose focus. We gain focus. We gain perspective. We gain clarity on what it is that we are supposed to do. And John tells us exactly what it is that we are supposed to do in verse 3. Look at the text. Everyone who has this hope on him, notice, purifies himself even as he is pure. There it is. Do you see it? Did you see his point here? Preoccupation with the rapture produces purity in our lives. Anticipation produces sanctification. Hope results in holiness. And notice John's wording. This is really unusual wording. This doesn't occur anywhere else in the Greek New Testament. The one who has this hope purifies himself. And that word purifies? Present tense. Ongoing, never-ending pattern of a child of God is purification. And notice that it is self. Self. Purification. What does that mean? What does that mean to purify yourself? mere moral improvement of your life better hit the gym better get your hair done better get in shape is that is that what this is no no i'll tell you what it means the construction here is intensive what it means is that when it comes to your own purity and holiness that you stop at nothing you stop at nothing you spare no expense you do whatever it takes to grow in your sanctification. You make whatever sacrifice you must to be a holy people. Because you understand sin will stop at nothing to destroy you. And therefore you must beat it to the punch and you must destroy it. Holiness, purity is not passive. It is not lackadaisical. It is not stagnant. It is not, it is not nonchalant. Rather, this is the person who tears out an eye and cuts off a hand, if need be, and throws it in the garbage if they can taste the pleasure of a holy life. That's what it means to purify yourself. The question is, do you purify yourself? Do you see holy vigilance and violence with the sin in your lives? Do you take the machete of God's word and always hack the vines and branches of sin that grow in your life? Because, you know, some people, they have a never-ending list of things that they want to change and remodel about their homes, don't they? Some people are just obsessed with, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but people just, they, they, they have this vision in their minds of what they want their homes to be. And they have this never-ending list of things, projects that they want to shape and change about their homes. And they always have some project that they are working on that to, to beautify their home, to make their home exactly what they envision it to be. My question is, what is on the list of things in your life that you want to renovate and fix? Because your holiness is way more important than your house. What 
purification project are you working on right now? Husbands, this is a low blow. Husbands, what area of your life would your wife love to see you renovate and purify? What would she say? You can ask my wife, she'll tell you. If you ask her, what would you see, what would love to see change about Jared's life? She'll tell you. Seriously, won't you? <laughs> well, she, she would, she would. I. Here's another one. Roommates and siblings. Those who live with you, those who see you in your most unguarded moments of your life. What do you think they would say about your life that they would love to see you renovate and fix? Young adults, teens. What would your parents say? What do you think they would love to see changed and transformed and purified about your lives? What do you think they'd say? This is big. This is big. So you see John's point, don't you? What John's point is, is that where the power for purity comes from, is found in the any moment appearance of Jesus Christ to return and renovate our lives and relocate us back to heaven to be with him. That's where the power comes from. So the question is, and this is my final question, I essentially close with this. The question is, how does this work? I mean, how does this actually work? Well, what is the connection between the any second appearance of Christ to rapture us and actual holiness and purity in our life? That doesn't seem logical. I know, maybe what this is, is that Christ, Jesus is like the grouchy janitor. Better not let him catch you, better not let him catch you chewing gum in the hallway, mister. Or the cosmic Santa Claus. He's coming to town. You better be good. He's going to put you on the naughty list. Is that what this is? Just, just the fear of getting caught? Not even close. Not even close. Now, to be honest, I would rather not be caught in the act of committing some sin when Christ returns, but that, that is not primarily where the power of the future of eschatology, where the rapture comes from. Rather, the power of this hope to produce purity in our lives. Get this now. Here's the punchline lies in the conviction that sinless perfection is the state of supreme satisfaction. That's the answer. That's how it produces purity in our lives. That the state of sinless perfection is the place of supreme satisfaction. You see, this person knows, this person here who has this hope knows that when Christ returns and makes us sinless and glorified, that is the place of deepest joy and pleasure. They know it. Nothing beats that. Nothing tops that. Here it is. Therefore, those who have their hope fixed in Christ long to experience as much of that future pleasure that they will experience now in the present. How they do that is by pursuing as much holiness as possible in the present. Why? Because holiness is happiness. Purity is pleasure. And sanctification is the path to our soul's deepest satisfaction. 
you understand there are many good motives to live a holy life, many good and noble motives to live a holy life. But if our holiness is not owing to a supreme satisfaction that triumphs over the passing pleasures of sin, we will not long resist. So do you see the connection with eschatology? Whether you affirm the rapture or not, if you call the rapture the second coming and you combine those together, collapse it together, that's fine. Nothing changes in the application. But the connection is we struggle so unnecessarily in our lives because our souls are not yet acclimated to heavenly tastes. The flesh still appeals to us because we have not yet learned to dine on the fine cuisine of eternity. Therefore, here's your application, go to the prophets. Read the prophets. Read Isaiah chapter 9, chapter 11, chapters 24 through 27, Chapters 65, 66, read Ezekiel, read the minor prophets, read First and Second Thessalonians, and of course, read the book of Revelation. Read it and read it and read it until the things of this world become strangely dim. Read it until you can almost hear the roaring multitude singing, worthy is the lamb because the more pleasure you can taste in the world to come the more purity you will experience in the life that is now let's pray oh Christ thank you for John the Apostle, the under-shepherd of our souls, who just shepherds his people so well, shepherds us, you shepherd us, because this is your word, these are not merely John's words, you shepherd us so well, we're grateful for that. And I pray, Lord, I pray that you would help us to people, be a people who look to the future, the people who live our lives on the edge of our seats, as it were, in anticipation of your return, the people who are not beat down with discouragement knowing that who we are now is not always who we will be. And I pray for the glorious effect that the urgency, the urgency of eschatology should produce in our lives that we would pursue holiness and purity and obedience and righteousness, not, not merely because it's the right thing to do, Father, but because we want to experience as much of that future pleasure as absolutely possible. Help us to be a holy people, not so that we are esteemed or we receive accolades from people, but that so that you, Jesus Christ, would receive all the glory as the only one who can change and transform people's lives. And thank you for that life-giving, life-changing power. In your mighty name we pray.